Welcome to Majority Minority, a podcast about the rising and evolving influence of people of color in Washington, D.C., and what it means for everyone else. I'm Franco Ordonez. I cover the White House for the 30 news outlets that together make up McClatchy. And I'm Bill Douglas, and I cover Congress from McClatchy. We're calling this season one of the show, a casual conversation in six episodes featuring voices from Washington, D.C., from outside Washington, movers and shakers who impact today's politics. Democrats, Republicans, consultants, activists, we're going to talk to people of all shapes and sizes and obviously colors. But all of them share one thing in common. At one point, they were political outsiders, often ostracized, sometimes criticized, and made to feel like they didn't belong. They've been the ones affecting the change and charting this country's future with priorities that reflect not only their family histories, but the changing face of the American electorate. Today's guest is Cecilia Munoz, who invited us into her home, served us tea and coffee. And we had a nice conversation about her time as the head of the Domestic Policy Council in the Obama White House. She's an important person because for her, particularly immigration was both policy and personal. She's someone who defended President Obama's deportation policies and in the process lost some friends. She defends what Obama had to do, and she explains that, look, we are a nation of borders, and those borders need to be enforced. She's witnessing the deconstruction of what Obama built. She makes no bones in calling some of the people who are running the White House white supremacists, and you can tell that impacts her deeply. She says it's also impacting her personal life. You know, I don't think you hear that very much from people in power. I can't think of anybody else who would be as great of a guest to kick off this series. Let's get to it. Thanks for the tea. Oh, you're very welcome. Did you like it? My husband brings that tea from England. With all this time on your hands, what indulgence have you indulged yourself in that you couldn't do when you were working at the White House? I have two, and my children make fun of me for them. One of them is that I do the crossword puzzle in the newspaper every day, which I have never been able to do in my life. My mother used to do it, and it brings me a little closer to her. And I savor the fact that I can spend time doing that. And the other is that I'm baking bread. My children think this is hilarious, but it feels good, and I haven't been able to do something like that in feels like forever. I get the crossword puzzle, but why bread? You know what it is? It's a thing you can start and finish and hold up a product at the end, <laughs> which... Um, unlike policy. Unlike <laughs> what I've been doing for the last 30 years. You know, it takes a little longer to get to a result. The results are can be extraordinary when you do, but they're not immediate, and you can't eat them. Can you tell us a little bit about your family and your siblings? So I am the youngest of four children who are the products of an immigrant family. My parents came from Bolivia in 1950 as newlyweds. So I have an elder sister, Chris, and my brothers, Eddie and Miguel, and I am the youngest. They settled in Michigan, and my dad worked in the auto industry for a Ford Motor Company for 40 years. Sort of the, the whole American dream, the kind of legendary thing my parents completely experienced. They came right in the 50s as the auto industry was booming. So we are Detroiters. We grew up in the Detroit area and are Midwestern Bolivians, which believe it or not, that's a thing. And I am the third generation of my family to graduate from the University of Michigan. My granddad went as a foreign student. My dad and all my uncles went as foreign students. Go blue. Go blue, indeed. I'm proud to say one of my two children went there as well. No pressure on them, though. No, none at all. Yeah. No, we indoctrinated them very early. <laughs> I feel like I lived my life very aware that the American dream was possible for my parents, and my life 
to a certain extent has been about making sure that's true mm -hmm. for other people as well. I'm also a child of immigrants. My mm -hmm. parents, both of my parents were from Colombia. Mm -hmm. I was born here. Sounds like some yeah. similarities. Yeah. One thing I've kind of had a hard time articulating, how is life different for a child of immigrants? So in the Detroit area, people I grew up around just on my block were Italian, Polish, Finnish, Ukrainian, uh, Irish, lots of Irish, but nobody who spoke Spanish. Like the only people who spoke Spanish that I knew growing up, I was related to. But I was very lucky in that my mother's sister and her family joined my parents in the States. So I had this great big extended family, so I felt safe and secure, and there were lots of people who were the same thing that I was. But I remember the moment going to kindergarten where I figured out that the rest of the world didn't speak Spanish the way we did at home, and I stopped doing it in public right away. It became the language of family and the language of secrets. Yeah, I think for me it was always kind of like the Spanish was like the language of adults. Yeah. And when I would go out with friends and hear their parents talking in English, I'd be like, oh, this is so odd. Yeah. And coming from such a large family, you speak about the sort of the American experience. Thanksgiving, the two questions that I have are, one, what was the Thanksgiving dinner in the Munoz household? And two, was everybody of the same political identification or persuasion? <laughs> Thanksgiving is our favorite holiday. My mother and my aunt did it by the book. It was classic. We are new Americans. We're going to read the magazines and the Betty Crocker cookbook to tell us how to do this thing. <laughs> and my mother hosted, and it would be like 40 of us, you know, buy the book to the turkey and the stuffing and the yams and the whole bit. But the music was always Bolivian music. And to this day, it's everybody's favorite holiday in my family. And generally, I have learned my family in the States is pretty progressive. We had, I think, different experiences of being minority in this country. Some of us are lighter skinned, some of us are darker skinned. My husband's from India, my daughter is, one of our daughters is darker skinned than the other and her experience has been different. Can you talk a little bit about that? So, Bolivia is a very divided country. Most of our heritage is European, some of our heritage is indigenous and it shows up more in some of us than in others. Yeah, yeah. And in this country, that matters a lot. Look, I grew up in a middle class family in a middle class neighborhood. But my parents were almost evicted from the first apartment because their landlady caught them speaking Spanish. She called it speaking Mexican, and she almost threw them out. What year was that? That was in the 50s. And my aunt and uncle, when they first came, uh, they moved to the south with their five kids, and no one would rent them a house. So they had to live in two apartments, he with the older kids and she with the younger ones. And interestingly, I never heard those stories until I started working in the civil rights movement, and that's when my aunt and uncle and my parents shared those stories. And they didn't think of them as discrimination, they just thought it was ignorance. It was one of the million ways that you adapt to living in America. And then when I started talking about what I was working on in the civil rights movement, it clicked for them. Oh, we have experienced that. So they just said, okay, and then they just went about their business. Yeah, that's exactly right. I've worked for a, civil, a Latino civil rights organization for 20 years. I learned that one of our biggest challenges was not that discrimination wasn't happening, but that people don't report it. Not necessarily because they don't recognize it as discrimination, but because the instinct is to just forge ahead and perhaps not have confidence that there are mechanisms to address it if it happens. I've heard that a lot. Is that an immigrant thing? Is it a minority thing? I suspect there's a little bit of an immigrant thing. You Immigrants have to brush off a lot and keep going. And I think as a Latina, as a community, we're still learning how to grasp the civil rights tools that you know lots of people fought to make available. Our history is obviously very, very different than the African-American community. 
some of the civil rights tools, voting rights tools, are obviously the same, but there is less. You know, our parents come from a country where that stuff doesn't exist. For them, I think what they would say is having the courage to use those tools is, you know, one of the 87 things that you have to find the courage to do when you are making a life in a new place. Did you ever experience discrimination? Not nearly on the scale that lots of other people do. So I got teased about the, you know, funny foods I brought in my lunch. I got teased about being from a country that nobody had ever heard of. I learned to be careful about speaking Spanish because it was a pretty exotic thing. But look, I'm a light-skinned, middle-class Midwesterner, so no. What about during your time in Washington? <laughs> I was complimented by a member of the U.S. Senate on my English, very memorably. Can you say what happened? We were working on an immigration bill that was going through the Congress, and it had a point system, and the idea was we want people to be able to adapt so you have more access to come as an immigrant if you're an English speaker. And this is something that we objected to, and this senator made the point of, well, but look at you. You speak fabulous English, like you wouldn't necessarily expect it. And I got trained when I got to the National Council of La Raza in 1988. And from the very beginning, this was a very much an ethic at the institution, right? That if there is a typo in anything you write, people think your English is bad, so there will be no typos in anything that you write. Then look, my whole career I've done this thing, which I think of as Latinos 101, which is not everybody knows who we are or how deep our history is in this place. And so part of what comes with being an advocate is being willing to explain it over and over and over again. We didn't just get here. That Latino 101, is there a certain amount of pressure to be that teacher? Yes. How so? Well, this town needs a few, right? I live and work in Washington, and you know, there's a category of people who, it's not just that they don't understand us, the category of people who are, and they're ascendant at the moment, really object to who we are and what we might be bringing to this country. What's the thing you have to explain the most? Gosh, that speaking Spanish doesn't mean rejection of English, that the contributions and history of this community are enormous, and the potential that we bring for the future are enormous. People don't know that we've been here for a really long time, that Hispanic Americans have fought in every war since the Revolutionary War in this country, and that this is a delicate topic because it gets misunderstood, but 14% of the continental United States used to be Mexico. And there's a legacy to that and people who are descendants of that experience. So the fact that those people now, this minute, are feeling like they need to walk around with passports or birth certificates because they could get pulled over and could get detained for being immigrants on the basis of what they look like. It's extraordinary because our diversity is not new. The kind of richness of who we are, the thing which makes us unique on the planet, isn't new. And sadly, our struggles with each other aren't new. You spent 20, 30 years fighting for civil rights. Mm -hmm. I mean, you were in the thick of this. As a college student, you were tutoring Hispanic detainees. Mm -hmm. Jackson um, State Prison. And in a way, you jumped to the other side in mm -hmm. some senses, and you faced some blowback mm -hmm. regarding enforcement, regarding family detention. Yeah. How hard was that? When the president asked me to serve, which was a complete shock. I wasn't expecting it at all. I knew going in that if I said yes, that I would own immigration enforcement, that there is no way that that wouldn't be true, and that that's a really uncomfortable topic in my community. So at some level, I fully grasped that for some folks, I was going to become a pariah, and that's what happened. And the reason I decided it was OK to decide to go in to government was that I believed in the president I was going to be working for. And I felt 
that I had a reasonable chance of walking out of that building at the end with my integrity intact. Immigration enforcement is a really hard topic, but I don't believe the answer to that topic isn't, can't be, no, we can't have immigration enforcement. It's a fact of life and it's a necessity, and the question about immigration enforcement isn't, should we have it or not? It's how should it be conducted? And if people like me who know what I know get chased out of government because you can't remain pure, because you have to actually address the questions, really hard questions about how to conduct immigration enforcement, government won't do as good a job. Like you need people who know what I know, making these decisions and taking heat for it. Did you ever have conversations with the president and have to talk about some of these things and say, look, this is how the people are feeling about what's going on? This was one of the many, many amazing things about working for President Obama. He has deep understanding of the policy and deep understanding of the implications. He did several really difficult meetings with my friends in the immigrant advocacy community, people that I've known forever, people who in some cases are like family to me. And there was one particular one where people were coming at him, really eager for him to take executive action on immigration enforcement. He just iterated over and over and over again, the way we're going to fix this problem is through Congress. I don't have the authority to fix it as it needs to be fixed. You're asking me to take executive action. Anything I do is going to be too small and, and too temporary, which he was right about. One of my friends in this meeting in the Roosevelt Room said, I don't know how you can sleep at night. And he... <laughs> He looked at her and he said, you know, I don't sleep very much at night, but I have to tell you something. I don't just worry about those kids. I have to worry about kids in Somalia, and I worry about kids in all kinds of different parts of the world. And when you tell me that it's unfair that a child in El Salvador has to face this kind of violence, you're right. It's terrible and it's unfair. But we're still a nation that has borders, and I swore an oath to uphold the law. I cannot say to you that the border is open to anyone who wants to come because it's not. Um, later that afternoon, I got summoned down to the Oval Office, and he just wanted to check to make sure I was okay, because he knew it was hard for me too. Did that help? It just kind of sort of broke my heart because he's the President of the United States. He has a lot of things to worry about, and I should not be one of them but he has a very great heart. And frankly, a lot of the folks who criticize me and criticize the president, most importantly, at the moment, they really miss his enforcement priorities. <laughs> we didn't get a lot of credit for them at the time, but in retrospect, they sure look thoughtful. What do you think about the current White House? <laughs> well, I revere the White House and the executive and the presidency. I don't revere the guy who's occupying the office right now. It's hard to know even where to begin. I have a lot of deep reverence for the policymaking process, and I know how hard it is, and I know how much the people who work in that building will be tested in ways that you can't imagine before you go in and do it. And this may sound strange, but we really need them to succeed. And I don't agree, obviously, with the policy direction they're taking the country in, and I'm packed terrified by a fair amount of it. But look, in our first year, we faced the H1N1 epidemic. The next year we faced an oil spill, which was incredibly serious. We have faced cyber attacks. We have faced epic hurricanes and other things. And quite literally, people's health and safety depend on the people in that building doing a good job and depend on their ability to work cooperatively and collaboratively and to make decisions based on where the facts actually lead them. I really say this sincerely. I'm, I am not happy with the policy direction. I am beyond alarm that there are people with what can only be described as white supremacist views working in that building. I'm shocked by that. 
But as an American, I need them to succeed on the stuff that keeps us safe, and they are not on that trajectory. Can you talk a little bit about the makeup of the, the White House? Who has your job? Well, so the domestic policy director's job, they're configured slightly differently, so there isn't an exact parallel because the person who's running the policy operation and who's in fact sitting in the office where I used to sit is a guy named Stephen Miller. But you think Stephen Miller has like the most comparable? Yes, and when we did the disaster exercise, there's one required by law that you do during the transition where each member of the incoming cabinet sits next to their counterpart on the outgoing cabinet, and that's true of the White House senior staff. Um, I sat next to, to Steve Miller. Why do you think there are white supremacists in the administration? I wish to God I understood why that's true. Look, we all know, because it's been widely discussed, that uh, Steve Bannon's views are consistent with white supremacy and that white supremacists are thrilled that he's sitting where he's sitting. The more I read about Steve Miller, the more distressed I am, certainly about his views with respect to people with names like mine. And their, certainly their views with respect to Muslims. And look, they're making policy decisions on the basis of these views. The travel ban is exhibit A, but their approach to immigration is very clearly based on this notion that some of us are undesirable on the basis of who we are. And I find that to be a profoundly anti-American idea. I'm offended by it. I have been fighting against that set of views my whole career. And people have long treated us in having that conversation like we were being hysterical on that. There might be a handful of extremists out there who believe that stuff, but they're just extremists. Well, those folks, some of them, are sitting where I used to sit. I'm distressed by that. Some people talk about, well, a lot of this is bluster, and you, working in the Obama administration, know how hard it is sometimes to get some of these policies. Mm -hmm. You talked about the travel ban, the courts have stopped it. The issues on immigration are gonna take millions, if not billions of dollars. Those are gonna be very hard to put into place. I mean, how much is real and how concerned should people really be? Well, I would start by asking the people who have either been close to or are worried about hate crimes and, and, and harassment and abuse. It's already documented that hate crimes against folks who are perceived to be Muslims or foreigners are up. And I will say this, I'm, so I'm married to an immigrant. My husband's from India. He speaks with a British accent and he's been a US citizen for more than three decades. And for the first time ever, last year somebody shouted at him to get out of this country. And look, I, you know, that, kind of sentiment has been legitimized because it's some of the stuff is being expressed by the president of the United States. That's not a theoretical policy effect. Can you describe like what your response was when he told you this and and what did you tell your daughter? I was there and I was about to turn around and get into it with this individual and my husband said, just keep walking. He's brown in a way that I'm not. And so I deferred to his judgment on how to manage that. And I think about it all the time because the Indian American who was shot in that bar was shot on the basis of what he looks like. And I think the only difference between that and the encounter my husband and I had was that there was no gun. Unfortunately, people who shouldn't have any reason to be afraid are afraid right now. You sound like you're a little afraid. I'm not for myself. For the first time in my life, I occasionally am for my husband. Did you have a conversation with your daughters about it? Yeah. They're Latinas and Asian Americans. Uh, they're, and they're both very beautiful, by the way. Not that I am. I'm not exactly objective about this. But yeah, they talk about it and they feel aware of it and they are wrestling with it themselves. And at some level, as a policymaker, I think, all right, there's value in the fact that the country is now much more aware of this thing. 
It's not like white supremacy ever disappeared. And so maybe we can do something with that and get somewhere better. But it's still tragic and horrifying. President Obama is doing what ex-presidents do, is sort of lay low. Do you think he needs to be more visible, more outspoken? I think a lot of the country misses President Obama and misses Obama very much. I think they deserve a little rest. But I also don't have any doubt that they will both speak when they feel it's appropriate and right. But the president talked about this before we left office, and he talked about it in interviews. It wasn't just with his team that he discussed this. He benefited from the fact that his predecessor did not attack his every move, even though they disagreed on policy. We benefited very much from the fact that President Bush's team did a thoughtful and professional and courteous job with the transition. And from the moment of the election, the president made it clear we are going to do the same thing. And, and I believe we did. But he did say, look, on matters of deep principle, don't worry, I will be there. And I know he meant it. Why does it matter that you were part of the administration as a Latin American? Why does it matter that yeah. there's someone of your background? I'm really, really deeply proud of this. And by that, I mean not necessarily just proud of my presence, but proud of the Latino presence in the administration and the African-American presence and the Native American presence and the LGBT presence. And this is very diverse and we were deliberate about it. I know how much it benefited our decision-making process to have people in the room who understood communities from the inside because they were part of them. And one of my favorite moments it was actually of all things during the oil spill, which is not my favorite time. <laughs> but at one point we were being briefed in the Situation Room and I looked around the room and there were four Latinas in that room. And I realized like, we weren't there because somebody said, oh, we're having a meeting on the oil spill. We gotta make sure we got our Hispanic women in there. We were there because it was our job. Right? My job wasn't to just represent for my folks, which is a very hard thing to do. My job for the last five years was to lead his domestic policy making process. And I'm the first Hispanic person to do it. And I think that maybe the second person of color to do it. And look, I'm aware of what it communicates to particularly to young people in my community. I hear about it all the time. I appreciate that when you break a barrier, you're sending a signal now that this job is available to anybody who can work for it and has the skills for it. And that's as it should be. Look, the president broke that barrier for the presidency. So I'm deeply proud of that. I think it matters a lot. What do you think the way forward is under Trump? Gosh, I wish I knew. I will say that I have learned about taking the long view from my former boss. As distressed as I am by what I see happening, because I think it's bad for the country and dangerous, I am also really excited to see the ways in which people are claiming this democracy. I think we took it for granted. and. You know, I talk to my daughters and their friends and to my neighbors and to all kinds of people who, it's not that they weren't engaged, these were folks who turned out to vote, but now they're showing up at town hall meetings and they're writing to their congress members and they're thinking about running themselves. And my younger daughter who lives, she's in college overseas, she called me the night of the election, she was watching the return, she called me in tears and said, I just don't know if I can come back, this doesn't feel like my country anymore. And then the next day she called me and she said, I have to come back, I have to fight for my country. Good people are recognizing that democracy is something worth fighting for and that, and that we didn't think we had to fight for it in this country and it turns out we do. And that's gonna be with them their whole lives. They are now the generation who experienced this election. And it's possible that that could change everything. But the, the short-term price is very, very high. How do you think President Trump might actually surprise us? Some of he surprises us every day. Um, it's difficult for me to say. I've never met him, I don't know him, but the, a lot of 
things which I think are fundamental to our strength as a society and our health as a democracy are being shaken to their core. From the very clear violations of ethics rules that I took pains to follow every single day, I mean, it's not just that the executive branch should not be interfering in funding decisions or law enforcement decisions, which we were scrupulous not to do, but it's really, really important that the country have confidence that those principles are being upheld. And if we get to a place where people are sort of completely cynical and think you can never govern with integrity, I just don't know if there's any turning back from that place. Things work so fast when you're in the White House, kind of warp speed. What's it like to suddenly be a private citizen? <laughs> I was there all eight years, and they say when you leave, you don't know how exhausted you are, and that certainly turned out to be true for me. In the last few months at the White House, one of my colleagues said it really very well. I don't want it to end, but I can't wait for it to be over, because it's such an extraordinary, special experience, but it also takes every ounce of everything that you've got, and it really does. We left the country right after, like we'd planned a trip, uh, my husband and I, we went good and far away, and it took me weeks before I did not wake up noodling over some policy problem, you know, and then it would take me a few minutes to wake up and think, oh, that's actually not what I do anymore. How far away did you go? We went to New Zealand. <laughs> <laughs> Why there? Actually, part of the reason was because I worked on public health policy, and I did not want to go anywhere that had the Zika virus because I'd spent too much time working on it. I found a Zika-free country that was still having summer. <laughs> and it, uh, it turns out to be an incredibly beautiful place. How is the exhaustion now different than when you were in the thick of it? Well, look, I, it, while I was doing the work, believe it or not, it's a physically very demanding job because you are on all the time and you have to be performing at your best all the time. And the fear of making a mistake, because if you make a mistake when you sit in that building, it can be pretty epic. It's the most extraordinary thing I've ever done besides becoming a parent, but it's, um, it's that kind of job. I think the exhaustion that people feel is the, right now is about the disconnection that people feel from each other and from the notion that policy can actually really make a difference. There's nothing on the table that actually addresses that. If anything, we're being driven further apart. Is this prompting you to bake more bread? Yeah, right? I can pull out a loaf at the end of the day and there it is, I can see it. Well, Cecilia Munoz, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me, it's been fun. You know, I think it's something that she is still obviously a, a soldier of the Obama administration. She said that she lost some friends in the immigration advocacy movement. They wondered how could she defend someone who earned the title of deporter-in-chief. But that comes with her job, and she did own it. But she paid a price for that ownership. No, there's no question that she's extremely concerned about what's happening in this administration. And it's actually a theme that I've heard from a few former administration officials that a lot of them thought that after their time was done that they would have like a significant break. Under usual circumstances, when a president leaves office, you know, high-level White House staff sort of disconnect and decompress. But she mentioned that this has been hard for her. Sounds like Cecilia continues to be very involved and very much vested in maintaining the legacy that they helped create. Thanks again, Cecilia Munoz, for joining us. Find more of Majority Minority on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, and for you Amazon Alexa users, tune in. Thanks to executive producer Davin Coburn, and you can read more about Munoz at McClatchyDC.com. And we'll be back soon with more Majority Minority.